0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on. Settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
2: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to
3: iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
0: um, queen, young and sweet, uh, only 17 uh, welcome welcome it's Thursday's podcast uh, we only had a couple of upsets on the program today uh, our apologies to anybody who uh, loves the doors and knows the very alive designer Bruce Field who uh, we managed to say had passed away, and actually, it's not funny at all. No. Um, but he is alive, and we hope very well. And he had designed the outfit that the Queen Consort wore to a dinner in Germany last night, which was why he was in the papers. Yeah, but it just shows you, Jane, doesn't it? That if somebody isn't in your echo chamber of people these days. Uh, You do, I do, tend to assume that they can't possibly be alive anymore, because you're so inundated with images of people, brutal all the all the time. I must remember (laughs) never to move, ever, ever, never
4: move out of your orbit. No, but do you find that? Um, I I suppose it's a good point. If we don't see them, if they're not part of, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't think of them as literally dead, although (laughs) to be fair, it was me that made the mistake about the person we're talking about so they're not they haven't passed uh, do we say i don't no, like i say died I, I say like died yeah. yeah although it is extraordinary the people do still cling to euphemisms
0: don't they i think it'd be far better just to say died cuz it's a fate that awaits us all yep i and i know that we've uh, we've done this to death pause for effect Very good. um but uh, the past thing uh, just for me has those religious connotations that i don't i don't really believe in so that's why I find it really weird. Nobody's, in, in my world, mm. passed to the other side. They have died, they've died when yeah. they've left this world. Yeah. So there we
4: go. Although I did think it was a lovely touch by uh, the journalist Polly Hudson in the mirror today. Um, she's tried to see the bright side of uh, the very genuinely, very sad death of Paul O'Grady. I think a lot of people were upset about it. But uh, Polly wrote that um, it would be lovely to think of him reunited in heaven with his drinking pals, Cilla Black, Barbara Windsor and Dale Winton. It would be a party. And that would be a party, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, and she anticipated that they'd be drinking the finest champagne in heaven. I want to believe there's really good vintage champagne free-flowing 24-7 when I get up to the pearly gates. And my first question will be, where is the champagne bar? Because presumably there are no hangovers in heaven, are there? Uh, oh, there can't be. No, well, why there can't wouldn't be. there be? Oh, why? No, there can't be. Because all your troubles are over. Because you've had all your hangovers on Earth. All my hangovers have taken place right here on this planet. Okay. I will you know, not have them.
0: You know the flaw in your plan. What is it? You're an atheist.
4: Oh, you, that's just nonsense. <laughs> okay. I don't know when right. I
0: told you that, I think you said it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Did I? Yes. Uh, right, stay with us. Some more facts and authenticity from Garvey and Glover. Uh, this one uh, lets you off the hook, love. Lots of love from Susan. Uh, hi, Jane and Fee. I was only half listening to yesterday's podcast. Sorry, I was working. Do, no do better, please. Give no. up work. That's the difference between us. I was going to say, I don't worry about it. The two of us, we're the only over 50s in Britain who are working. <laughs> if you believe
4: some of the headlines,
0: everyone's playing golf. I'm going to start saying that, actually. You know, when you have to give your profession, I'm just going to say economically active. (laughs) Active. Uh, But the woman who told you off for using bad grammar was utterly wrong. She apparently criticised... Uh, actually, you've split a preposition, an infinitive thingy there, haven't you? Uh, she apparently criticised your use of prepositions because you'd said Jane and I instead of Jane and me. If she's going to be that picky, me is not a preposition, it's a pronoun. And in this case, it's an object pronoun. So that woman can go and take a flying jump, keep up the good work, I love your podcast, how dare she? Well, <laughs> well listen, Susan, everyone's welcome no, here. No, but
4: everyone's welcome to have a pop. Um, where would we be without people criticising us? I mean, we don't mind at all. No,
0: I really don't mind. We're
4: big enough to take it, ironically, because we're both minute.
0: Uh, Have you got a funny one there?
4: Um, It's not particularly funny, but it is quite important. Uh, We're still talking about childbirth because I don't think we've ever had such a a consistent response to an interview as the one with Paul Morgan Bentley earlier in the week. Um, This is from Katrina, who says, for our first child, the midwives were efficient if brusque, no real issues but it did feel a bit impersonal but the following year i was back for number two but in the meantime i'd been diagnosed with a serious and debilitating illness i arrived for my first antenatal check just as the midwife was opening my file so got her unfiltered reaction as she looked up said you poor thing and then burst into tears to be honest, this was more disconcerting than the brusque efficiency, but subsequent appointments also had a personal feel, perhaps because the midwives were also outside their usual comfort zone. Um, Well, I'm so sorry to hear about your diagnosis and I hope you're all right at the moment. Uh, The midwife I saw in the final weeks offered under the radar home visits, says Katrina, if I wasn't able to lumber down to the clinic, squeezed in a reflexology session to try and get things moving. And when I missed my last checkup, texted to see if all was okay. I apologised profusely that cancelling had slipped my mind as I'd been in labour and her immediate reply was that she had tears running down her face as she was so overjoyed to hear that all had gone well. Oh, that's lovely. That's a wonderful example of... De- not well beyond decent care, just real compassion and understanding. So that's brilliant. Yes, yeah.
0: I did. Uh, I w- I woke up at four thirty in the morning, which is my anxiety blob, as you yeah. well know, uh, thinking that um, yesterday when we were talking about midwives and stuff, I really, really don't want to upset the midwifery profession because we were just talking about our own experiences, and I imagine that you go into midwifery because you're a joyful, optimistic person, actually, and somebody who wants to care for others especially at the start of life uh, so i suppose I, I i just feel bad if the job has ground you down to the point at which you know that's something that is beyond your ability mm. but i didn't want to offend midwives no. at all i mean god knows for my you know subsequent children jane i'll be needing them oh very much so. very much never so. rule it out it could happen at any time uh, keep has up it ha- happened no <laughs> no it hasn't uh, keep up the good work says Liz in London who's been meaning to email us about a couple of topics for some time and she has now combined three subjects in one email. Strap in, she says. Uh, I really enjoyed your interview with Paul Morgan Bentley. I usually give your interviews about parenting a wide birth because I'm childless, not by choice but by circumstance. Consequently, discussions about babies can be at best not hugely relevant and at worst a painful reminder of what I will never know. Secondly, if I could pitch a TV show, it would be a dark comedy about the divide that can split friendship groups when some people become parents and some don't. There is, quite rightly, a lot of time given in the media to the full gamut of being a parent, amazing, good or just mundane, but pretty much no space for the one in five women who won't have kids by the end of their childbearing years. And it's likely that for 80% of us, that wasn't our choice. Sometimes it feels like we are invisible, and yet we make up a huge chunk of the population. Our grief about not becoming mothers is compounded by this invisibility. Thirdly, orchestra stereotypes. I once sang in an amateur choir that performed at the Albert Hall. We had a professional orchestra and the brass section were messing about like naughty boys at the back of a classroom. Uh, I used to play the violin and was always a bit jealous of the brass section. It seemed like a lot more fun. Uh, So thank you for all of those things, Liz, uh, and I'm glad that it wasn't just me. Uh, say so the brass section always a bit funny uh, but also that point about childlessness is just such a good one to raise and Liz I really hope you can listen on Monday because our guest is Elizabeth Day and her book is called Friendaholic and some of the stuff in it is about exactly that the divide between friends of hers who've had children uh, and what that's done to their friendships because Elizabeth has been really open about her journey trying to conceive so I really hope that you'll be able to listen to the show on Monday live. Uh, She'll be in at about 3.30, but you'll also be able to hear that interview go out in the podcast too.
4: Yeah, um, very good point made or good points made there. A quick one from Annette who says, uh, if you encourage hedgehogs into your garden, they'll eat the slugs for you. Hedgehogs are in decline. We need to encourage them and provide food and shelter. That's the kind of email we like. Pithy, informative and absolutely gets me going. Yes, I welcome all hedgehogs. If any are listening, but then, of course, there comes the problem with the easy grass. Um, oh, I know. Dear. oh, dear. Yes, I've outed myself again for having artificial grass. But you've got it as well, haven't you?
0: Yes, I did once see a hedgehog in our garden. Oh, though. did you? Yep.
4: Was yeah. trying to eat the easy grass?
0: No, it was just rummaging around uh, in the kind of, um, you know, broken bits of tree that had fallen down, which I've handily left just for the hedgehogs. That's what I tell myself.
4: <laughs> let's talk about a scottish tv show that should be remade
0: <laughs> oh this uh dear children my all-time favorite novel is lorna doon rarely on tv the last series was in 2000 and when i went to check which channel it streamed on realized it was before netflix gosh was there a time yeah. and the like and nearly 25 years ago uh i can't remember ever s- and i do remember reading lorna doon what's the story of lorna doon Oh, my goodness. Uh, she, is God, it, good question. Is
4: she a pioneering young woman who has an adventure, or is it more no, depressing? No,
0: it's sad, bleak, oh. Oh, uh, yearning, I'm right. thinking.
4: Okay, sad, bleak, yearning. very <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> really much like your life. Yes, no, oh. well, mine too. Um, uh, do you know what? We really need to check in on Lorna Doone. But it was st- I think I did that for O-Level. Isn't that terrible? I really have completely forgotten the well, plot. I've been the
4: bloody mayor of Casterbridge, which is what I did. <sighs> It starts with a... Do you remember how the mayor of Casterbridge starts?
0: Isn't it a clip-clop, clip-clop, somebody on a horse?
4: It's a a wife-selling fair or something. Oh, Oh, so miserable. Unbelievable. Um, Honestly, things have improved. Um, But actually, you had a solid TV recommendation today, didn't you? Oh, Blue Lights. Yes.
0: Uh, So that's available on the BBC One. Right. And it is a cop proceed can mm. never say that yeah. uh it's set in belfast and it is bloody brilliant jane okay. i'm having to pace myself on that one so i don't gorge it all in one sitting
4: right well, but it's really good always good to get recommendations um this is from somebody who wishes to be anonymous because their teenagers would be quotes mortified if they discovered i'd take into emailing radio programs and podcasts <laughs> oh, there are... oh, you've had a... what's your news alert Want to bring us a headline from the BBC? From the BBC, what is it?
0: They want me back.
4: (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. I just turned
0: my notifications on because I was going to look up the plot of Lorna Doone while you were reading that email. Is the breaking news worth breaking? (coughs) Gosh, there's so much, so much action now. Let me just get to the breaking news, just in case. You carry on with that, and I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what... um, OK. Our
4: anonymous correspondent writes, I am writing following your plea to hear from listeners from the north-east of Scotland. I'm here to tell you that you can rest assured that you are reaching us loud and clear. Uh, Contrary to common stereotypes about Scots all being vocal Glaswegians, you'll find that many Scots, particularly from the east coast, are naturally rather more reserved. We listen, but we keep our opinions quietly to ourselves. I expect you'll get emails from Glasgow now if you dare share this comparison. I am of course poking gentle fun at these characteristics. If you've read any of the brilliant Alexander McCall Smith Scotland Street novels, you'll understand that we're just a little quieter in the East. Than our west coast neighbours but equally warm and self-deprecating. We have a truly beautiful coastline from Edinburgh to Dundee and Angus. Dundee has been ranked the coolest city in the UK recently. We have brilliant cycle paths, art, music, the V&A, home of the gaming industry in the UK and of course also home of the Discovery, the ship that took Captain Scott to the Antarctic in 1901. At the risk of sounding like a tourist guide, Angus glens are magical. As far as listeners go, I have a group of school friends all now in our 50s. And whilst initially slightly hesitant to change with you, we all regularly listen and chat about the show. Oh, thank you, Anonymous. And our very best to your um, to your compadres. Up there? Up in the glens. Up in the glens.
0: So we used to spend our family holidays up Glenesk, which is one of those beautiful Angus glens. And I would absolutely concur that the East Coast beaches are just beautiful. There's one called Lunan Bay, which I think is just such an evocative name as well, because it's in the shape of a half moon. uh, And it's got a a ruined castle uh, on the headland there which is just known as the Red Castle. It's really, it's a stunning place to be, and there's never anybody else on the beach. Well, you've given it away now. Well, uh, I'd like to, actually, because that's a funny thing, isn't it, when people have really favourite places and they don't ever want to share them in case somebody else goes there and it becomes their favourite place. Mm. But there's stunning beaches, but people do often head to the West Coast. West Coast, a good point. And there are fewer midges on the East Coast as well. Okay, go East. Yeah. Uh, So how lovely to hear from a group of people who are listening on the beautiful East Coast. Lorna Dune is a romance. Uh, It's a novel by the English author... Here's here's where your English... Degree comes in um, handy. Author.
4: Is it um Henry? No, George. Uh,
0: <laughs> no, is it, um, it's the other one, Richard. Ah, ri- oh, yes. yeah, Richard Blackmore, published in 1869, and it is a romance based on a group of historical ca- characters set in the late 17th century in Devon and Somerset, particularly uh, around Exmoor.
4: I thought it was about Scotland. No, I had That's no idea. Not. i Thought it was a Scottish thing. I apologise. Another. I've got so much wrong today.
0: No, you haven't. You got everything right, love.
4: Uh, Deborah writes to fill us in on the subject of henges. Now, I was very interested in this. This is when we were talking about Stonehenge to Tony Robinson last Wednesday. If you missed that, by the way, that he was a particularly nice and interesting chap, wasn't he? Um, He was. Yeah. So you can find that obviously uh, on the feed. It's last Wednesday's off air. Um, And we were talking about what a henge is. Now, um, I was interested in this because I have just read a book by the crime writer Ellie Griffiths, which is about an archaeologist who teams up with a slightly taciturn police chap to solve crimes. You don't say. I know a taciturn police chap. I know. It's it's astonishing. It, it's very unusual. They have a bit of an affair, but he's married. <laughs> anyway, um, I think I already read the first book. It's a very long series, very successful series of books about an archaeologist and a detective and the first one is called I think Crossing Paths but anyway loads of people would have read them already um but this email from Deborah just makes it clear what a henge is it's a neolithic and henges do feature it uh, throughout these Eddie Griffiths books I should say a henge is a neolithic i.e new stone age earthwork typically comprising a rim ring shaped earthen bank with a ditch running around the circumference inside the bank a henge may or may not contain structures such as stone or timber circles. And the three biggest British henges with stone circles are Avebury and Wiltshire, which isn't far from Stonehenge. And then the Great Circle at Stanton Drew in Somerset. And in Orkney, there is the Ring of Brodgar. Um, there are also significant henges in Yorkshire. That they don't have significant internal structures i mean this is a that we still don't really know what was going on in british prehistory, and why these things were needed and whether or not they were used as some sort of ancient method of communication it's just very weird and very spooky mm. and never not fascinating
0: yeah one of the things that i was most intrigued by in our conversation with tony robinson is the connection that has been made though uh, with the Henges all around the country. Mm. So he was referring to some Neolithic structures in Orkney and and asking, and they don't know the answer to this question, uh, you know, why there would be this similarity. Yeah. And the obvious thing is that because somebody travelled from Orkney to Wiltshire and That's therefore... quite a long way. Well, I was going to say. How did they do it? I mean, National Express coaches didn't get going until, what, the mid-60s? Imagine embarking on that trip. I know that you have your issues with Avanti West. <laughs> but I think, actually, I yeah, setting off for,
4: uh, out of all... <laughs> British prehistory of Avanti West must have been really Which really? is all I'm prepared to say. Like challenging. This is so fascinating. Deborah says, may I suggest you invite Tom Booth from the Crick Institute to talk about the new ancient DNA analysis techniques, and this is so fascinating, which shows. That a 90% change in the genetic makeup of the population of the British Isles took place starting around the time the Amesbury Archer visited Stonehenge. Think about it, she says. The 90% replacement of indigenous genes by Central European ones over just a few generations. A well known archaeologist Alison Sheridan attributes this to the British women's fascination with so called. Funny foreigners. (laughs) So it sounds to me like um, a pre-British woman, sick to death of old man Eric and his tedious ways, fell passionately into the arms of a fella who had a little
0: bit more charm. Well, we've got to get him on as a guest.
4: I mean, what? That's an amazing change. And I, I love all this stuff because it just... People who witter on about, you know, indigenous British populations. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. None of us do. None of us know who we are, where we're from. Or, you know, it's, it's, that's, it makes racism so moronic. I mean, it is moronic. But it, when you actually read stuff like this, you realise how... Idiotic, it all is.
0: Let's book that guest. I don't know why I'm using a funny voice. Uh, Can I just say a very quick hello to kathy Fellows, uh, who has fallen in love with the three crime novels written by Susie Steiner and is passing them on to all of her bookworm friends. I'm going to keep recommending Susie actually, because I think it's just so, so sad that she died so young, but those three books are uh, just brilliant I think particularly for women of a certain age uh, and this is an anonymous one it's about our conversation we were talking about lottery winners weren't we because somebody wrote in to oh, say yeah. that they've been an amazing... I, and I knew people would I mean I don't blame them by the way
4: for getting cross about this but... well no so
0: so our our emailer says just a quick note a million pounds would change the life of every family I know in lots of cases for two generations at least I can't be the only person listening that's not loaded and I found the dismissive comment about the impact of a million pounds on people's lives to be really insensitive. Well, all I'm going to say, I'm going to say this in defence of, of Jane, that she's absolutely right, that in London at the moment, it, is, it would be almost impossible to buy a house for a family near to where you work, if you work in central London, and that is about seven million people now for less than a million pounds that is the astonishing place that we've come to yeah. in modern economic society so jane wouldn't have been saying that in a kind of throwaway oh million pounds or whatever i think you were just trying to make the point that it just doesn't go as far as it should go
4: well, I mean, i'm sure i said it clumsily but you're quite right and thank you for that but i, I wonder whether our listeners elsewhere in the world will just chip in here via email about house prices and renting. And oh, the, that would be a good thing I, to do, I, I, We're just... It's such a concern in Britain that young people cannot even dream of getting on the housing ladder. Um, and what else did I want to mention? There was something more... Specific. Well, while you find something, yes. can we
0: just ask Jane Curzon to get back in touch? Because you sent us a very interesting email uh, that Jane and I looked at, and we weren't quite sure... Uh, what it was that you were um, trying to tell us. I think you've just left a couple of words out of that email, actually, Jane. But if you can write it again and let us know, because it's about your experience of your son's birth and something that was said to you by a member of staff on the ward afterwards. And we're a little bit intrigued by that. I don't know why I've said little. Like I'm some kind of a Eastender. Are you quite well? <laughs> Do you know what? I feel this week's been quite
4: long, Jane. Well, we've both had a little bit of a virus, haven't we? <laughs> um, and not Covid, because obviously we wouldn't be here no, if we had had Covid. It would be but, sensible. But we've I've had a bit had of a tickly throat. A really irritating little colds, which, of course, we have to accept are still around, just like they always were. And um, but you do you do start to panic, don't you? I was imagining what I thought last weekend. I definitely had COVID again. As it turns out, I haven't. Um, Here's some good advice from a listener called Susan. I've had various experiences of childbirth across my four children that aren't particularly unique. But one thing I was sure to do after my first baby was getting my hair done. Close to the due date, you will inevitably have photographs taken in the hours after the birth, and even though you may look exhausted, puffy, and frankly a bit sweaty, if you've had a decent blow dry in the previous few days, things won't look quite as dreadful. Just a small tip to share, she says. Here we are. Let everybody take note. Okay. I tell you what, not a, a no blow dry on this earth would have <laughs> would, would have helped me.
0: <laughs> oh. Both my kids were very... They didn't keep to their due dates. Yes. Their timekeeping sometimes asks something to let of me down. even now. <laughs> so that wouldn't have worked. It was Gwyneth Paltrow's ski trial, Here's Final Arguments that the BBC had very kindly informed me about oh you're ju- that. that wasn't <laughs> breaking news
4: <laughs> that is unbelievable
0: right where were, we're you really late so we yes to so do come on come on because we've got two interviews on. to get in so uh, the first interview that we'd like to play you uh, today is with the Nigerian writer Ayobami Adebayo and her debut novel Stay With Me made the women's prize shortlist uh, it's a really lovely novel actually written about a disintegrating marriage and it's kind of part thriller uh, it's it's part about Nigerian politics. It's really, really good. Uh, she's written her second novel, which is called A Spell of Good Things. And in this one, she is shining her light on Nigeria and the gaping divide between the haves and the have-nots and the shared humanity that lies in between. We started the interview by asking her to just tell us a little bit about the two main characters.
1: Thank you so much for having me. So A Spell of Good Things is about two families and from each family, you have a central character who we're with from the beginning of the novel to the end. And um, the first is Eniola. He's a teenage boy who's in secondary school. And his family has fallen on very difficult times, to the point where they can't afford to pay their rent. And now his parents are struggling to pay school fees. And he's quite desperate to continue his education. And that's where he sort of is at the beginning of the novel. And on the other side of the class divide, you have Waraula, who is a junior doctor. She's in her first year of practice um, doing her housemanship. And she is the perfect first daughter to her parents in that she's done everything. You know, she's done, she studied medicine, she's gotten good grades, um, the only thing she hasn't done is get married, and she's in a romantic relationship at the beginning of the novel. And she's figuring out um, whether marriage is for her, whether this relationship should go ahead, and their lives sort of become intertwined as the novel unfolds. Um, I think there are all kinds of intersections in which um, the choices that each person makes impacts on the lives of the other one. Uh, we shouldn't give away too much. Uh, because
0: obviously uh, we want people to read the book. Uh, I'm interested by that class divide though. Uh, is the Nigerian class divide very similar to our class divide in this country, which is still very much in
1: evidence? mean, I think in certain ways it is. In Nigeria, I think that right now it's getting even sharper and sharper. I guess you could call it a post-COVID re- recession. All kinds of New policies that have made lives more difficult for people, and it's probably even a wider Gulf, because some of the public infrastructure that would make things easier, see, for instance, healthcare, solid public education, many of them are either collapsed or in the process of collapsing, so that. I think any kind of mobility is much harder now than, say, maybe 30 or 40 years ago.
0: Mm. Uh, I also felt it was very much a book about uh, male pride, actually, and perhaps something in the male psyche which just doesn't allow an acceptance of failure or an acceptance that life might change.
1: Uh, is that something that you very much wanted me as the reader to feel? So when you're reading, you go through you go through nine points of view, um, and you get the interior lives of nine different characters, and two of them are the fathers of these um young people that I've mentioned earlier. And in your last father, the young boy's father in particular has lost his job and By losing his job, he has lost um, the life that he thought was possible to him and the kind of life that he thought he could make possible to his family. And he's having a very difficult time with that, partly because he struggles with a mental health condition and also partly because there is such an assumption that he would be the primary provider for his family and when he cannot be that person, he, he, he can't reconcile his reality with the identity he's tried to live up with, you know, all his life. And there's, in quite a number of instances, still that sense of pride um, when there are opportunities that, for instance, his wife takes advantage of, you know, to help the family. He can't bring himself that low. It had all kinds of consequences, you know. Mm.
0: And it's also about the the generation gap, isn't it? And the notion that elders always deserve respect, uh, which quite often, you know, we know, don't we, that that can make uh, the younger generation very vulnerable, actually, if you have to do uh, what your elders say. But I wonder, as a, a youngish woman yourself, whether you think actually that's changing now in Nigeria, so much of that power play between generations has been really challenged over the last couple of
1: decades hasn't it? Yeah I mean I think that I mean it's it's changed quite a bit. I don't think that necessarily the expectations that say my grandparents had of my parents applied by the time I was growing up but there are still expectations in many instances of following a certain part that your parents think is best for you or the people that are older than you think is best for you. And there are all kinds of reasons. So I I do think, like you said, that it has changed over time. And you see a bit of that reflected, for instance, in the novel, um, in the relationships across, and I'm using this word very loosely, the three generations. Did you um, talk
4: much to members of your family about being a doctor? Uh, Yes. So with
1: the book... When I was writing it, I think when I started writing it, my my sister was still in medical school and she went through her uh, housemanship while I was still writing it, you know. And because we're quite close, we talked a lot, you know, while she was going through that one year, Um, we would see each other now and then. We um, weren't living in the same city at that point, but we would make time to visit and see each other and just catch up. I mean, I think that our own experiences really one inspired me to write the young woman as a doctor. When I started writing the novel, if I remember correctly, she's a lawyer. I think she studied law and she was practicing as a lawyer. I, when I was, I guess halfway through, I made that change into having the character be a doctor because there was just something very compelling that I was observing from, say, my sister and even some of my friends who had just started to practice medicine in Nigeria. Um, The experiences that they were having and some of the stories they were telling of, I guess, being on the front line as junior doctors, you know, being the first point of call and all the pressure that came with that, and how they were dealing with it or not dealing with it, and I really wanted to write that into into this character. So yes, my sister in particular, she would read. By the time I was done, she read parts of it and said, "No, this wouldn't work like this. Nobody does this." Actually, you know, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Sisters can be quite useful um, it, at
4: times like that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really struck by how little people in Western Europe, on the whole, know about the politics of. Nigeria. And I did not know, for example, that there was a point in Nigeria's recent history when humanities teachers were just sacked, just got rid of because the humanities were not considered important. When was that?
1: So this is about the early 2000s. So at some point, I think between 2001 and 2003. And this happened in a particular state. So there are 36 states And in a particular state, I think maybe about 80% of the teachers in the humanities were sacked. Several subjects were summarily just scrapped because the government in power claimed that this was no longer relevant to the education of young young people. But what did happen on the national level, which I think is quite telling, um, was that at some point at some point in the last 10 to 15 years history was removed from the curriculum for secondary school students and was only put back on it a few years ago. So there's this stretch of time where the decision was made that young people did not need to study history, did not need to know anything about Nigeria's history. As you can imagine, I think that even now, the consequences of those choices are playing out in the way that the politics of the country is unfolding, in the way that young people, for instance, think about the systems that I think really can't stabilise a society. So for instance, when you just suck so many teachers overnight, or when you organise society in a way that they're not well remunerated, they're underpaid, and nobody's really paying particular attention in government to their welfare, I think you're saying something to young children. You're saying something to the students that they're teaching. You're saying something to a generation that is coming up that this profession is not necessarily something you should consider. It's not valued by society and therefore might be a waste of your time. So I think that we're starting to see a bit of that, say, people not choosing to go and pursue education. Uh,
0: your first novel, Stay With Me, was shortlisted for the women's prize for fiction over here and I think we're kind of turning uh to the point of the year where that comes round again, aren't we? And there is always this conversation, why do we need a prize just for women writers? Uh can't we all just exist in the same place and whatever? And I wonder whether you could explain why it is important as a writer to have a prize like that available to
1: you. And the Women's Prize was a prize that I had followed, you know, before even getting published. And um, the fact that my first novel was shortlisted for it definitely got that book into many more hands than it would have gotten into if it hadn't been on that shortlist. But thinking about a prize for women specifically, I really don't think that we're in a place yet In many parts of the world, where the experience of being a woman um, and whatever else might intersect with that is normative, or is what is the norm, even in in language, in conversation, the dominant stories that undergird our lives, in the dominant metaphors even that undergird our lives, it's a prize that continues to be important in platforming stories about by women and in many instances, often about the lives of women. Um, so I think it's a prize that continues to be important because we are not, we're not um, at that point where we can say, oh, we can just all exist on the same planet. I think there's still different distinctions and experience that necessitate a prize like the women's prize.
0: That was Ayobami Adebayo, and that novel is called A Spell of Good Things. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
4: We were also joined on the Times Radio programme today by Deputy Times Food Editor Hannah Evans. Now, there's an alarming trend, which you won't approve of any more than we do, to take very small children to very high-end restaurants, Michelin-starred restaurants even. Here's Hannah.
3: My palate, I was obviously born with an incredibly refined palate, so I've been eating um, michelin star baby food my whole life. Um, Mm -hmm. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but yes, more and more Michelin star restaurants are offering kids menus, which um, yes, it does sound a bit like Fresh Hell. Um and they're they're not just sort kind of like bangers and mash or shepherd's pie. Mm. Um Pierre de Terre costs uh sells a 40-pound tasting menu, um, starting with cheesy canopies. Smoked quail um, with celeriac tagliatelle topped with black truffle. Um, Petit furs, there's a mocktail and a baby chino to finish.
0: Yeah, your kid's just (laughs) going to be sick. I mean, all of those flavours all mixed together. There's a face that a child makes if it's anything other than beans, potato waffles and maybe a bit of broccoli. Mm. And that face, you don't want to see it. I know, you know, you're lucky if you can get a bit of
3: broccoli or, or high as a kite. The Ritz does a children's tasting menu for their afternoon tea, mm-hmm. um, which is £48. Pounds. Oh, for heaven's sake. And you are... Pl- I mean, I feel like I'm on a sugar high after an afternoon tea. So the poor little baby is going to be bouncing um, mm. off the walls. Hyde in Mayfair, which is um Olly de one-star restaurant, has truffle mash for children, £24 a bowl. Um and uh, Saint Pierre, which is a French uh, Michelin star restaurant with three stars in Singapore, has a tasting menu that begins with Amuse Bouche for the for the little uh baby kins. Perishers. Um yes. then, then um there there is um uh, uh Tom Carriage's uh restaurant, Hand and Flowers, um in Marlowe offers a forty two pound steak for children.
0: Okay, I I would have expected better from him.
3: Actually. I, yeah, I think so. Well, actually, if you are looking for Michelin star children food at a bit of a budget, Le Manoir. We're which not. Is... <laughs> no, we're really Wait, not. Are you, are you not? No, well, I think this is so ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Um, but, but tell but, us about what Le Manoir is offering. Well, they offer a more budget tasting oh, menu. So £24 for three courses for a child, which is better. You're not looking convinced.
0: So just on every level, there is going to be too much salt and sugar in all of those menus. The idea that any kid wants to add truffle to their mashed potatoes. I don't think I even want to add truffle to my mashed potatoes. No, nobody does. And also, what are these kids doing in the restaurants? I mean, you know... You go out for a meal to get away from the little charmers. Well,
3: in so we have we're running a feature on this in the Times Magazine on Saturday, and this is a predicament that the writer has in that she's taken her her one year old and her three year old to the Ritz, and um, and the scones are sort of just rolling around on the floor, uh, skewered on a fork. Um, but there are other children there. She sees. She says they're just as welcoming as her soft play.
4: It's not the real world, this, is it? <laughs> Can we just let's just determine this, just so
0: that everybody's clear that um, Fia and I strongly disapprove and will not be indulging in it. I think those are quite hard environments for kids to be in, actually. Mm. And so that is a choice entirely made by the parents for the parents to go to those
3: categories. And, of course, and you don't have the kind of recognisable setting um, or, the, you know, there are new noises, there are new people. Mm. You're not really going to be concentrating on anything yeah. if you're
0: and, and one of the kids, Described in this, uh, I mean, it's a brilliant article, it's really good fun. Uh, who I think was in one of the finest hotels that may even have been at the risk have been taken there in her white Louis Vuitton dress. Yes. I mean, who puts a child in a white Louis Vuitton dress?
3: I was in Hand Me Down, so I, I don't even oh, have an adult Louis Vuitton Hannah, dress.
0: You've done so well for yourself. <laughs>
4: Thank <Really>? you.
3: <laughs> I'm sorry that we didn't get on to talking about other things. No, no, that's We case.
1: were
0: just completely boss and bug eyed by that article is quite extraordinary how much for the
4: steak again at Tom Carriage 42 pounds (laughs) okay you know the price of a happy meal uh, sometimes seems well well within most people's reach I would have thought absolutely also quite tasty Hannah Evans deputy food editor of the Times actually if you missed the live uh, Times radio show today another thing we talked about which was really interesting was uh, the importance of touch and um, you can go back and hear the programme on uh, wherever you get Times radio from it's all there on the app isn't it is it you can listen back can't you yeah Why are people looking at me as though
0: I'm a maniac? I don't know. (laughs) Just a little bit too much Kool Aid. (laughs) Now, we've got an exciting experiment uh, that Kate Lee is now going to furnish us with because we spend quite a lot of our time on the programme talking about artificial intelligence. We're intrigued by it, we know you're intrigued by it. So the production team have been superb and they've come up with a challenge, Jane, Thank you. where they've uh, they've given us two emails. One is a normal email from a regular proper human pundit with a beating heartbeat and a brain and the other one has been created by chat gpt so i'll read one you read the other and we've got to decide which one's which and
4: they're both titled name for your portaloo
0: company okay i'm going to do the one from danny okay hello jane and fee on monday's podcast you mentioned a business where you drive women's portaloos around the west end so women can pee and avoid queues i have a name Mind your P's and Q's. Obviously, a play on mind your P's and Q's. I also had a similar idea. It's very good that mm-hmm. I also had a similar idea based on the price of adding extra avocado or halloumi to a takeaway meal or salad in central London. What times we live in. <laughs> they charge over a pound to throw a slice of avocado on top. The business basically involved buying the cheapest possible avocados and halloumi from a budget supermarket, chopping it up and selling it out of a van to people who've just bought salads or sandwiches from takeouts in central London for lunch. Lunch. what do you think all the best danny
4: okay so is that for reals or is that chat gpt and here's another one dear jane and V. i'm a huge fan of your show and i recently heard you talking about starting a pretend portaloo company i couldn't resist the urge to reach out to you with a name idea for your new venture after giving it giving it some thought i came up with the name royal flush uh, for your pretend Porterloo company. I think it's a catchy and memorable name that perfectly captures the essence of your business. And you know what, mister? I think you're not real. But anyway, <laughs> the name Royal Flush has a nice ring to it and it's a play on the Yeah, you're not real. And it's a play on the term used in poker. It also invokes the image of a powerful and efficient toilet flush, which is exactly what you want your customers to think of when they use your portable toilets. I hope you like my name suggestion and would love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the great work on your show. Best regards, artificial intelligence. I'm absolutely convinced that mine is the made up one.
0: Uh, on what basis
4: there's too much um there's too much in there it's not that's not human that is not human i've got to be right if i'm not right i want to pack in because i just feel something approaching total despair
0: okay i'm going to agree with you because i think it was just a bit too wordy the captures and captures yeah yeah but it's a good name royal flush yeah not bad at all kate which which one was the ai one
4: the second one was the AI one. Oh, so we got it oh, so right. We did get it right. That's actually a re- un- keeping up the theme. A relief. It is. Um, but what yeah. a great
0: challenge as well. Yes. Because um, it wasn't far off the mark.
4: It wasn't, but isn't. Uh, it was obvious to me, and well, what to us both, that that wasn't real.
0: But if that had just been in a pile of other emails, I think we would have read it and just gone, "Well, yeah. that's quite a dull email." Uh, but thank uh, you. I
4: uh, know, but that and that's the. That's the really frightening thing, isn't it? You are right. Well, have a really dystopian and depressing weekend, everybody. And uh, we'll be back
0: as real people. And I tell you what, I wonder whether the AI robots of the future will make as many cock-ups as us. That might be our absolute salvation, the fact we're a little bit raggedy round the edges. I hope so yeah have a lovely weekend whatever you're doing and speak to you on Monday oh and just before we go could we let you know about a special uh, podcast that drops into the feed tomorrow that's Friday Uh, it is our royal special where we had a sit down I didn't realise that was a thing but we had a sit down didn't we Jane with
4: uh, Royal Nika from the Sunday Times and Valentine Lowe from the Times uh, respective royal correspondents
0: and we discussed six months on from the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and we looked ahead to the coronation and those two know things don't they so it was a very interesting conversation
4: you don't have to be a nailed on monarchist to get something out of that podcast which drops tomorrow you did it Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical
0: ramblings. Otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. (laughs) Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man, it's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now if you want even
4: more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at 3 o'clock Monday until Thursday every week and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine genuinely interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects.
0: Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. you control which apps you share your exact location with there's more to iPhone
2: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time